The following audio is from Amaze KC. More information about Amaze KC is available online at www.amazekc.com. Titus 3. Be ready for every good work. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of, our, of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis. For I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. So as to help cases of urgent needs. And not to be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Can we still podcast from this microphone? We're good? All right. Thank you. Well, good morning and happy Mother's Day to those of you who are mothers. Welcome to those of you who are uh, guests. It's great to have you here today. My name is Joshua. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, on behalf of our pastors and our church, welcome to Emmaus. It's our joy to have you with us. It's our prayer that in the time that you're with us today, you would learn and grow in how you marvel at Jesus or that you would leave here today marveling at who he is and what he has done and his grace to you and to us. And so that's our, been our prayer for you. That is our prayer for you today. And, and then that's our prayer for you as covenant members as well. It's great to be with you today and to, to see you and to get to worship with you on Mother's Day. We want to celebrate that it's Mother's Day. We want to recognize that. And one of my joys here at Emmaus is the fact that um, the women of Emmaus, our covenant members um, at Emmaus, are some amazing mothers 
Right? It's been a blessing to my wife and I. It's been a joy to us to get to watch and, and see how you love your children, how you um, parent your children, how you raise your children in the gospel to trust Jesus and hope in Jesus, and, and how you display the gospel to those who are watching you through the way that you parent. So thank you for doing that, ladies. I want to um, just, just show you honor today for that. We also want to recognize today um, that is a day for some of of pain and sorrow rather than celebration. And for some of us, it's a mixture of both of those. And so um, we want to go to the Lord in prayer. We want to pray specifically for our mothers today. Uh, And then when we're done with that, we're going to jump into the scriptures. All right, let's pray. Good, gracious, kind, loving Father, today I come to you as a man, as a husband, as a son, and as a pastor. And I thank you for the gift of mothers. Thank you for all of the mothers, biological, adopted, and honorary, who have shaped us. Thank you for the mothers who have taught us your grace and goodness. Thank you for the mothers who have held us and wiped our tears and corrected us and taught us. Thank you for the mothers in this room who spend their days and their nights weeping for their children, loving their children, and expending themselves to the point for their children um, to trust and hope in the eternal Father that is you. Thank you for our mothers, Father, who would give them, would you, would you give them strength today where they are weak? Would you give them endurance where they are tired, hope where they despair? May their identity not be in their success as mothers, but in their redemption as daughters who have been purchased by the death, burial, and resurrection of your son, Jesus. May their hope not be in better technique, but in your spirit's leading. May they find rest as mothers in the one who created all life. And then, Father, we recognize that today some in this room are hurting. There's pain in this room. Up to this point, there are some in this room, Father, who have been unable to have children. And there is a pain and a longing to hold their child that consumes their thoughts and their feelings. God, you are a God that is faithful and good. Would you give our ladies who long for motherhood strength to keep praying and keep trusting? And would you sustain their days and their nights as they faithfully long and trust? Father, today there is pain in this room for some because they have lost children. Father, some of your daughters have had miscarriages since last Mother's Day. The hope of seeing their child smile was snatched from them by the evil of death, and they have been left with the dream of what would have been. Father, today we want to acknowledge that they did not simply lose a fetus, but they've lost a child in that pain and that sorrow and that grief that they feel is appropriate. Some women in this room do not mourn the loss of a child to death, but the loss of a child's health, the hope and the dream of a well child. The sickness and the trials that their child faced today weigh heavy on their hearts of the mother who wishes to wipe away every tear and pain. Today, Father, would you give these mothers strength to look up, to look up to the giver of life and trust that you are good, that you are good to the child that they have lost, and that you are good to the child who wrestles with sickness, and that you are good to the mother who carries these pains on behalf of her children. May these mothers look up and know that one day you will wipe away every tear and you will take away every pain and you will restore every loss and may their faith be strengthened today. Finally, Father, there are both men and women in this room today who are hurting because they have lost their mother to death or to the brokenness of sin in this life. 
Father, would you heal the grieving, the longing, the hurting hearts of your sons and your daughters in this room who have lost the dream and the joy of having a Jesus-loving mother? Would you fill the gaps in their souls and their minds with women who love you deeply and will invest in them sacrificially? Would you be father to the motherless? Would you return through your grace what the enemy has stolen from your sons and your daughters today? And we thank you for mothers, and today we celebrate you, Jesus, by celebrating them. Now, as we turn to our passage in Titus, Jesus, would you, through your spirit, enlighten our hearts to your truth? May our souls be affirmed of your grace. May our lives be convicted to put away our sin and to pursue godliness because of it. May we be tender to hear from your word and to obey it today. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Today we conclude the book of Titus. Conclude the book of Titus today. We're going to cover all of chapter 3 today. I've got nine pages of manuscript today, so hang on. Right? They say on Mother's Day you should let the church out early so everyone could get to the restaurant before the other churches who are also letting out early. We have a different strategy. We will let out late so all of those church people are done eating, and then you get to go right to your table. All right, That's what we will do today. Chapter 3 of Titus, if you've not turned there already, go for it. Turn there with us. It's been a joy to go through this book. Here's what we've seen so far in the book of Titus. We've seen that the church, to be a healthy church, you must have right pastors who teach right doctrine so that there is right living. Right pastors who teach right doctrine, right beliefs about God, so that there is right living by the people of God. And all of this is to be done for the glory of God so that others would look to the church and see God in all of his glory, see Jesus in all of his glory. Right pastors teaching right doctrine for right living. So far, Paul has said this, your church must have right pastors, and here's what to look for in a right pastor. And in chapter 1, he outlined for us in 10 verses what a right pastor looks like, spending majority of his time about that pastor on the way that they manage their home, on the way that they love their wife and they care for their children. And he said, watch how they love their wife and care for their children and watch their doctrine. If those things are good, then they are a right pastor. And then he says a challenge to those right pastors that they would teach right doctrine and that they would do this in teaching, exhorting with right doctrine and rebuking wrong doctrine. That there would be a teaching of the church and a correcting of the church for right doctrine because doctrine matters. Right? Doctrine is a set of beliefs that you have about God, and it matters that you believe rightly about God. It eternally matters for your soul. It matters on the grand picture, definitely, of, of who Jesus is and salvation through Jesus. You have to get that right. But also there's other details underneath that that it matters because when we have right doctrine, we know God rightly. Therefore, we trust God rightly, and we worship God rightly. It should affect every area of our life, which leads us to what Paul then said when he said that our doctrine should affect the way that we live. Church, there should, we should spend our days and our nights differently than ones who believe wrongly about God. We should spend our days and our nights differently than those who believe wrongly about God. Those with right doctrine should live differently than those with wrong doctrine. So what about those with no doctrine? That's wrong doctrine. 
Everyone has doctrine. They have right or they have wrong doctrine. The atheist has a wrong doctrine. Right? All have doctrine. And our doctrine, right doctrine, should lead us to live differently. And that's what he spent this book telling us. And then last week, he gave us our means and our motivation for this right living. Our means and our motivation for this right living. And he came and he said, listen, the, 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 the empowerment that you have to live this is, is not simply by mustering up your own strength and being able to do this yourself. It's not just, let me, let me gear myself up, let me beat myself on the chest, let me listen to the right music and gear up the right energy like you're about to lift weights or something. He's like, no, the, the power that comes from this is an internal power that comes from the gospel through changed life. That Christ died to set you free from your sin, to make you pure because he wanted you. He chose you and called you and by the gospel has strengthened you and trained you for godliness. We saw last week that the grace of God in the person and work of Jesus has come to save us and also to train us. Right? There is nothing deeper than the gospel. You don't come to church and you're like, I've got the gospel. What's next? What's next is more gospel because the gospel trains us to live in godliness, Titus chapter two tells us. And that brings us then to Titus chapter three, to Titus chapter three. Tracy already read it for us as a long passage. Thank you, Tracy, for going the extra mile for us there. Titus 3 begins, and as he begins to talk to us, what we're going to see is really he's going to walk through for us more examples or more instructions or more imperatives of what it looks like to live godly. I have tried to to summarize this into five points for us, all beginning with the letter R. Not only are we a traditional Baptist church today because we had to put a microphone in front of the pulpit for you to hear me, but now I'm alliterating my sermons, right? Five points that all begin with R. Let me give them to you, and then we're going to go through this verse by verse and see them. He's going to tell us to be ready for good works. He's going to tell us that we are regenerated for good works. He's going to tell us to be reserved for good works. He's going to tell us to respond to, respond to division and then he's going to release, tell us to release who we are and what we have for good works. Who we are and what we have for good works. Be ready for good works. You're regenerated for good works. Be reserved for good works. Respond to division and release who you are and what you have for good works. So let's just begin. Verse 1, we're going to look at in verses 1 and 2, being ready for good works. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one and to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy towards all people, right? Be ready for good works. It sounds simple, and yet as we look at it in detail, I think it's probably a lot harder for us to do than what it first sounds like. Just begin at beginning. It's a good place to start. First, he says to be submissive and obedient to authorities and rulers. Submissive and obedient to authorities and rulers. Hopefully two questions come to your mind. To what rulers and authorities should I be submissive and obedient to? And what does it mean then to be submissive and obedient? Those are great questions. I'm glad you asked them because I've got the answer in my manuscript. 
First, we are to submit to and obey rulers and authorities who are placed over us. All rulers and authorities who are placed over us. It doesn't give us an out clause. Just obey and submit to rulers and authorities who are over you. So let's just start at home. Children, your mother and your father are your ruler and your authority. For our children who are in the room, your mother and your father are your ruler and your authority. The Bible tells children to obey and submit to them. So a rebellious, disobedient heart is sin. And as a child, we must repent of that. Say, Josh, I'm 25. I've got a job. I'm living on my own. How does this apply to me? It doesn't. You're out of your parents' house. The scripture will tell you to honor your parents for all of your days, even after all of their days to honor your parents. But for those within their parents' home, we are to obey our parents and submit to them. Likewise, Scripture would say at home that wives are to submit to their husbands. Now, let's be very clear. So not to misinterpret what we just said. This is different than the way children are to submit to their parents. Wives submitting to their husbands is different than the way children submit to their parents, right? This is not a, I'm the man, so I'm the boss, do what I say to do, submit. Especially not on Mother's Day, men. That's a horrible way to spend today. But hear me, men, that is not what this means when scripture says that wives are to submit. You're not the dictator in your house. It calls the wife, when it says submit, to be one who follows by selfishly laying down herself to follow and support and encourage her husband as he spiritually leads the home. Scriptures have called the husband to be the spiritual authority within the home. So the wives are to say, I'll follow you. I'll follow you as you lead our family. I'll respect you. I'll trust you. I'll go with you. It doesn't mean you don't bring up things and go, I have a question. I question this. I don't know that that's wise. Please, wives, do that. That's our sanctification do that, but that you submit and follow. This is the the home. We go out of the home. Let's talk about school. A lot of you are in school. We're a young church. A lot of you have just finished finals for the semester, whether you're at UMKC or Park University or or Maple Woods or Midwestern. A lot of you go to school. You just finished finals. You're done for the semester. Some of you graduated. Congratulations, by the way. But while you're in school, you have authority. There are teachers And there are principals, and there are presidents, and there are provosts, and there are bus drivers who are authorities in your life. And we are to submit to and obey them, which means that we honor their policies and we obey their rules, even when they make no sense to us. We leave school and we go to the workplace and you have a boss. Or you have a boss that you are to obey and submit to, to follow his rules and his policies and and his authority. And then in our city, we have police and the mayor and laws and rules. And I've gotten two speeding tickets in the last month. I'm failing at this one. And the state of Missouri sent me a letter, said, you're gaining points fast. Be careful. It was a reminder. Okay, the authority, pay attention to what you're doing, even in the little things. We're to honor the policies and obey the rules of our land. But pastor, I think this, is a, this rule that they have is dumb. 
right? I think the rule is out of place. The rule doesn't make sense. The rule is outdated. The rule shouldn't be there. The scriptures doesn't give us an out on that. It just says obey and submit. It doesn't say obey and submit unless you think it's stupid. Obey and submit unless it doesn't make sense. Obey or submit unless you disagree. It says obey and submit. Obey and submit. In our nation, our president, our Supreme Court, our authorities over us, even if you have differences in political values and philosophies and stances, they're still our authority. And we are to obey and to submit. And in case you think this is unfair, like we've, got, we've got a corrupt government, we've got corrupt leaders, that, that isn't fair. I want to remind you of the, the culture that Paul's writing to, the people he's writing to who are sitting in the Roman Empire at this time under the leadership of Emperor Nero, who had recently falsely blamed Christians for setting fire to Rome and was now coating Christians in wax shirts and setting them on fire to light his gardens. And it's to that government that Paul speaks to this church and says, obey and submit to your rulers and your authorities. So it could just be me, but I don't think you have an out on this. Now, we do see that there is an exception clause to this within Scripture. And the exception clause is this. If your government or your rulers or your authorities command you, dictate you to you, tell you to do something that is in direct disobedience to Scripture, we do not obey them, we obey Christ. So, for example, should, should our law turn and say you're no longer allowed to speak about Jesus? Guess what the Christian is to do? Speak about Jesus. If the law turns and it tells us that we are no longer to pray, guess what the Christian is to do? Continue praying. If your authorities lead you to directly disobey Scripture, you obey Scripture, not your authorities. But here's what that also means, Christian. That means that you and I then obey and submit to the penalty of us obeying Scripture over our authorities. So if it means that you lose your job or that you face lawsuit, if it means that we are imprisoned or that there is unrest in our lives because of trusting and obeying Scripture rather than our authorities, then we are to peacefully submit to the outcome of that with our authorities. Are you with me on that? So we're not making a huge deal. We're not, we're not slandering. We're not attacking. We're not causing upheaval and violence and, and re- seeking revenge. But we live with the reality that when the government and rulers lead us to do something that is anti-Scripture, we obey Scripture, and then we peaceably face the consequences. Does that make sense? So he tells us to obey every authority and ruler. And then he tells us to do this. Be ready for every good work. Verse 1, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. 
right? Being ready to prepare yourself, to train yourself, to discipline yourself, to be on the lookout for. Being ready is not just meandering through life and all of a sudden good works pop up and you're like, oh, I'm not ready for this, right? You're looking for, preparing for, gearing up for, watching for, you're engaging in the opportunity to be involved in good works. Good works do not save us. They never save us. But good works always flow from those who are saved. They never save us, but they always flow from those who are saved. And we're to be looking out for them. And not just some good works, but for every good work. Right? He, he continues to push us to the next step. Okay, I'm, go, I'm going to look for an opportunity to do one good work this week. That's my quota. I've got enough energy in me, enough time in me, enough, enough balance in me to do one. He says, constantly be ready for every good work. That you're always ready to expend yourself for the good of another, for the glory of God. In chapter 2, it told us that Christ saved us so that we would be zealous for good works. It's not passive, it's not apathetic but it's an all-in, aggressive, opportunistic approach to good works, waiting on the edge of your seat for opportunities and then taking those opportunities, being ready for our good works. So he tells us to be obedient and to submit, and, then in verse, and he tells us to be ready for every good work. And then in verse 2, he tells us to be gracious in our speech. Right? This is all under this, this banner of being ready for good works. To be gracious in our speech is a good work we are to be ready for to speak evil of no one, and to avoid quarreling. Right? To be, speak evil of no one and to avoid quarreling. Right? In, in the last chapter, we saw that it actually told us, don't slander, don't speak evil. Right? This language that you're speaking in the form of trying to humiliate or to belittle or, or to demoralize or to set others against them, to sow discord against someone, to segregate them from others. We could go on and on. And I think at first glance, most of us feel like we're pretty good at this. We don't deal with this. We don't have to worry about this. But if we'd be honest with ourselves, I think that we are far deceived in the way that we actually slander others. Sometimes we don't even realize that we are slandering. Because we do so in the form of prayer requests. And we do so in the form of warnings. And we do so in the form of concerns. And we do so in the form of seeking other people's input on a situation. And if we are not absolutely careful in every one of those instances, we will find ourselves in a place of slandering other people. We have to go above and beyond to not slander. And he tells us to avoid quarreling. Look at me, church. Stop quarreling. This is a church that doesn't deal with that very much, but there is some of it. There's quarreling that takes place in our lives, right? We thrive on picking fights, creating arguments, maybe in the name of debate, maybe in the name of nitpicking, maybe to get perspective or critique and evaluation. But we quarrel. And some of us argue over the littlest things. In his commentary on this passage, Danny Aiken says this, we Christians exercise Listen to this phrase, exercise sweet reasonableness. We Christians exercise sweet reasonableness out of a life of wisdom that refuses to hold a grudge and that also gives others the benefit of the doubt as is stated in 1 Corinthians 13. 
The regenerate person or the Christian refuses to cultivate and then exercise verbal or physical abuse. As far as possible on our part, we seek to live at peace with everyone, as it says in Romans 12, 18. Right, that we are to be people who practice a sweet reasonableness. We are to be people who refuse to hold grudges who give others the benefit of a doubt, who refuse to cultivate and to exercise verbal and physical abuse, and we are to give at all possible lengths to live at peace with everybody. Which means you're constantly going to be sacrificing your rights, your desires, your wants, and your opinions for the sake of unity. Not in contrary to Scripture, not in contradiction to Scripture, where Scripture stands, truth stands, and we stand on that. But we seek to live at peace, to be gentle and gracious with our speech. And then he tells us in verse 2 to be gentle towards others. Right? He says, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, and to be gentle and show perfect courtesy towards all people. Be gentle and to show uh, slight courtesy, perfect courtesy, he says, towards all people. I remember growing up as a boy, my dad was a pastor. I remember watching him just get slandered by our church. Members of the church lying about him, accusing him of things, attacking him. I remember staff members cheating and lying and doing things, and my dad in a mass array of gentleness and patience and kindness, never raising his voice, never getting in their face, not just quickly firing people, not quickly kicking people out of the church or giving them their mind. And I remember as a teenager actually telling him, tell him what is true. Defend yourself, get in his face. And I remember like telling my dad, you've got to take up for yourself on this and get at them, go against them. I was even like, should hit them. Being a jerk. That's what I would do. I knock people out on the basketball court. This is far more important. That's what I remembered. That's 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 what I thought. And I thought that my dad was a weak man. Now, I'm a man. And years have tapered my youthfulness. And the spirit tapered my sinfulness. My dad was the wisest man that I've ever seen in that situation. Oh, that I could learn from him even today on that. To be slow to speak, gentle towards other people. Not defending yourself. For the judgment, Christ will defend you with his blood. But to seek to live in unity Dad wasn't weak. He was obedient to Scripture. We are to be gentle towards all people. And then, not only are we to be ready for good works, but we are regenerated for good works. Verse 3 through 7. Regenerated for good works, 3 through 7. For we ourselves were once foolish 
disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God and Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by his righteousness, by 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 us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So he tells us that we are to be ready for good works. We are to be obedient and submissive, that we are to be on the edge of our seat watching for opportunities for every good work, that we are to be gracious in our speech and gentle in our actions and the way that we treat others. And then he goes, and this is why. This is why you're to be that way, because we were all fools ourselves. We were fools ourselves. And what Paul calls us to is this, to remember the chains that enslaved us. To remember, to look back and remember the chains that enslaved us. Church, let me ask you this. Christians, let me ask you this. Do you remember what it was like to be enslaved to your lusts? That your every waking moment was dominated by your lustful desires and thoughts. Do you remember what it was like to be enslaved, to be chained to your passions? to be chained and and enslaved to your fears, never able to overcome them, to be enchained and enslaved to your shame. Do you remember what it was like to have no control, no hope, no peace? Do you remember what it was like to think wicked thoughts, feel wicked feelings, say wicked words, and do wicked deeds continuously, unable to stop? Paul calls us to look, to remember our chains. On this text, Charles Spurgeon said this, do not let me talk about these things this morning while you listen to me without feeling. I want you to be turning over the pages of your old life and joining with Paul and the rest of us in our sad confession of former pleasure in evil. Don't let this go past you today without feeling. But turn over the pages of your old life. And in sad mourning, remember and confess your sins. Remembering your sins, who you were, how you were enslaved, how you were imprisoned before Christ. Because Christian, this this strange thing happens. That the longer we follow Christ, the longer time exists between the beginning of our salvation, our journey with him, and where we are at now, there should be this process of sanctification that happens where we're growing more and more like him, but we're also growing farther and farther away from remembering the chains and the slavery and the brokenness that our sin put on us. And Paul is calling us to look back at that and go, this is who you were. Remember it. Don't ever forget it. If you're anything like me, you just want to move past it. I've been forgiven. Let me not deal with that anymore. Let me not think about that anymore. Let me not wrestle with that anymore. Let me not bring that up in me anymore. Let's ignore that at all costs. But the cost of ignoring our slavery and our past to our sin 
is that we remain today in areas of slavery and that our worship of God for who he is and what he has freed us from is robbed by our apathy and our ignoring of our brokenness. So we must look back to our chains and back to our slavery and back to our sin and see how wicked it really was, how evil it really was, how destructive it really was in our lives and how destructive it was in the lives of those around us so that it would bring us back to a place of mourning for the destruction our sin caused in us and others and bring us back to a place of worship for the freedom that Christ has given us from that. Does that make sense? It's like some of you need to go home and you need to spend some serious time turning the pages of your past. You might literally need to do it with a journal to literally turn pages and write thoughts and remember this is what it was like before Jesus. My hopelessness, my brokenness, my slavery, my damnation, this is what it was like before him. So that then you can hold that up and look at it And hold up who you are with Christ and look at it and go, praise be to Jesus. Which is what Paul tells us to do. Because he tells us to remember our chains. But then he also tells us to remember Christ's grace. He says this, for we ourselves were once foolish. And just listen as we read through it, the things that he says we were because of our sin. We were fools. We were disobedient. We were led astray, not going the right direction. Or we were slaves to various passions and pleasures. We passed our days, spent our days in malice, right? With the intent of doing evil, right? Not accidentally falling into evil, intending to do evil. We spent our days in malice. We spent our days in envy, longing for what others had. We were hated by others. Well, of course you're hated by others if this is how you're spending your life. In malice, in envy, quarrelsome, disobedient, foolish. And we hated others. Of course we hated others. They have what we want. We spend our days in envy. We're full of malice. We're intending to do them evil. Being hated and hating others. Verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared... He saved us, right? And I love verse four here. It's so similar to to Ephesians chapter two, verse four. But God, you were dead in your trespasses. You were dead in your sins, but God. And here in verse four of chapter three in Titus, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our savior appeared, he saved us. And not because of any works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration through Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. But his goodness and loving kindness has appeared and has saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness. Remember, Christian, If you're a member here, you know this because we've gone over this over and over and over again. But remember, never forget this and always remind yourself of this. Your salvation was done by nothing on your part. You had nothing to do with it. You could not do enough good to merit salvation. 
fact, one commentator said, and I agree with him, on your best day, you had nothing to give God. And if you have never realized that, you have never been saved. On your best day, you had nothing to give him. And if you've never realized that, you've never been saved. For the person who has been saved, the person who's been made justified, who's been regenerated, made new by God, is the person who, as we sing about moments ago, admits and only admits they have nothing to bring and they only need Jesus. That's when salvation takes place. And so he says, Christian, you had nothing to do with this. It was purely on his grace, by his mercy, that he saved you because of his regeneration of you, his making new of you. So, so let me just, just run through this briefly for you. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, if you're visiting with us and you're, I don't want to use the term gospel and not explain it for you because you might think of something that we don't mean. When we say gospel, when we say saved, when we say justified, what we mean is this, is that you are a sinner. We all were sinners, living in rebellion towards God, making ourselves our own gods, seeking our own glory and our own worship. And our relationship with God was fractured eternally, and the penalty for that was the wrath of God poured out on us. But God, being rich in mercy, Ephesians says, because of his great love for which he loved us, sent his son, Jesus who lived a perfect life like we could not, died a sinner's death that we should have, taking on himself the wrath of God and in place giving you and I who trust in him his kindness. He traded us God's wrath for God's kindness in his death on the cross. He died, was buried, rose again, defeating sin and death. And those who hope in him, who trust in him, who come to Jesus and go, I have no hope myself. I have nothing to offer. I can't be good enough. I need you. Have faith. And they are saved. So if that's not been you, if that's never been you, then today would you trust in Jesus? Would you hope in Jesus? Would you admit your broken sinfulness and wickedness? Would you trust in Jesus? plead with you to do that. If you want to talk with me more about that, come see me after the service. I would love to do that. And so he tells us that we were regenerated for good works. And then he says this, that we are reserved for good works. Verses eight through nine. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Right? We are to be reserved for good works. It talks to us about this in verse 8. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who believe in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. This is idea of devotion, of being reserved, that you're set aside, that this is your goal and your direction, that you're going to live your life to be active in good works on behalf of others for the glory of God. That that's what your life is to be spent on, not yourself, but on good works towards others for the glory of God. Devote yourselves to that. Make it your purpose. And then he tells us this. 
do this because these things are excellent and profitable for people. They're excellent and they're profitable for people. Right? And so he says, devote yourself to these things. Ask yourself every day the question, how can I be about good works for other people today? And do it because it's profitable for people. It's profitable because your good work's going to bless them. And it's profitable because your good work's going to point them to Christ. And so we do good works because they're profitable. But then he tells us in verse 9, don't waste your life on what is not profitable. Don't waste your life on what is not profitable. Devote yourself to what is profitable. Don't waste your life on what is not profitable. And what is not profitable, he says. He says, verse 9, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. So what he actually comes to us is back to this idea of quarreling. And he says, don't spend your time in meaningless, pointless conversation and quarrels. Spend your time in action of good works. For the sake of time, let me just give us some practical application from that. Some of you would rather complain about the church than serve the church. Some of you would rather gripe about your neighbor than to help your neighbor. Some of you would rather argue about the process of salvation than share the gospel that saves. Some of you would rather debate the bounds of biblical counseling than to listen to a friend in need. Some of you would rather blow whistles about others' failures than to give of yourself to help them succeed. Some of you would rather protest the world's way of living than to devote yourself to the good works of declaring and displaying the gospel so that the world might hope in Jesus. Or just like we need to go home and do homework of looking to our past and remembering our chains, we need to go home and do homework of looking to our lives and going, where in my life am I spending myself on what is unprofitable? It's not that discussions and conversations that lead to disagreement should be avoided. There are right conversations and right settings about theological, missiological, ecclesiological, and philosophical processes that should be had that will lead to discussions, and that even seems silly to some other people. But these things should never be done in the majority of our life, and it should never be done without gentleness and without grace, and it is never to be done at the price of actually being involved in doing good works for others. Our lives are to be spent on what is profitable, and that is good works. And then he tells us how to respond to division. Verse 10 and 11. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. It's a tough verse. I think it might even be tough for us in a way that we don't see. I think it stands out to us that it's tough in the way of have nothing more to do with him. We'll get to that in a moment. But I think it's tough in another way first. I think this is a tough verse because what it actually calls us to begin with is restoration. It calls us to begin with restoration. But for the person who stirs up division after warning him once, 
and then twice have nothing more to do with him. And for many of us, this might actually be harder than having nothing to do with him. Because having nothing to do with him does not simply mean that you stop talking to him, you shun him, and you like unfriend him on Facebook. Right? What it begins with, when someone within the church is sowing discord or raising division, it always begins with seeking restoration. That you warn them once, and then you warn them twice, and then you proceed in breaking relationships. For some of us, what is hardest for us is to continually in love warn and walk with someone through the purpose of restoration. We'd rather just jump to getting rid of them. And it calls us to warn, to walk with, to seek restoration once and then twice. But if someone within the church does not then take the opportunity for restoration, does not seek unity, does not repent, does not confess, does not come back around, does not stop sowing division. It tells us as the church to have nothing more to do with them. Within scripture, Paul outlines this in various other passages. It's called church discipline. We go through this in our membership process where we explain to you who are becoming members that when you become a member of our church, it is our, to the best of our ability, our affirmation that you are a follower of Jesus. We've looked at your life, we've heard your words, and to the best of our ability, we believe you're a follower of Jesus. Join us in being followers of Jesus in this church. Church discipline is us saying to the best of our ability, we can no longer affirm that. We're not saying you're not a follower of Jesus, but we're saying that your continual pattern of sin in your life right now is one that would lead us to not be able to affirm that you're saved, that you know Christ. You're living in such a way as one who doesn't know Jesus rather than the one who does know Jesus. That's what Paul's speaking of here. We would warn once, we would warn twice, and then we would break fellowship with. The word literally means to shun. That we would push them away, that we'd shove them away, that we would turn our backs to them. Paul says in another passage that we would cast them out. Literally to the hands of the devil. For the purpose, not of being rude or mean or divisive to them, but so that in their sin, without the love and support of the church, that they would see their brokenness, they would see their sin and repent and come back. The goal is always restoration. It's always restoration. And then he says this in verses 12 through 15, the conclusion. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way and see that they lack nothing and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Real briefly, our last point is that we are to release who we are and what we have for good works. What Paul just did is he said this, Titus, I have put you in charge of bringing health to this church. Pastor them, shepherd them, labor on behalf of them, raise up leaders for them, care for this church, love this church, pour your whole heart into this church. And by the way, I'm sending two people to you and when they get there, leave the church in their hands and come to me. He called Titus to release who Titus was, the position Titus had, 
and trust God with that church and come to Paul. Right? This isn't like Paul's saying, I'm a couple hours away, drive and see me on Monday, and you can be back to your church on Tuesday. It's an extended, a long break of releasing who he was, his position over this church, and trusting God with it. Titus had to release his identity as pastor of this church to be obedient to what Paul had called him to and to turn it over into the hands of these men. And we, as believers, have to release who we are, release our identity and our security and who we are for the sake of good works. And then he says this, and do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. He tells us to release our possessions and our comforts because then he follows this up with, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help in cases of urgent need. You're releasing who you are and you're releasing what you have for the sake of good works. Apollos and Zenos are coming to you. They need to go on from you. Give of what you have so they have everything that they need. And then encourage everyone to live in a manner that they're always ready to give to those who have urgent needs. Mayus, this is something that you've done wonderfully through our two and a half years as a church. You've opened up your homes and your resources and your giving and your lives to people well. I'm proud of you for that. But it is something that we're going to have far more opportunity to do, I believe, than what we already have in the next year. Through relocating as a church to North Kansas City and the needs, the tangible needs surrounding our actual location there and the people who will come into our gatherings off the streets and the different needs that are going on there, we're going to find ourselves in a place where the people of God have to be ready to be able to release ourselves, who we are and our comforts and our resources for others. We're going to find ourselves in the next year with a process of of, Enforce moving into Italy for church planting. We're excited to give you more information on what that looks like, and we're going to be called as a church to release our resources and ourselves be a part of that. We're going to be called to do this by sending one of our very couples to Seattle to plant a church within the next year. And we're going to be called for some of you to maybe move with them and some of you to give for them and some of you to go and support them in that. We're going to be called as a people to help those who are hurting our communities, to help those who are joining us off the streets, to help those who we are beginning to reach through a refugee ministry that we're desiring to start and through other areas there within North KC and the greater Northland. So though we have been wonderful at this, I believe, for two and a half years, I encourage you and urge you, church, get yourself ready. Because the opportunities that we believe the Lord is placing before us over the next year to expend who we are and what we have for the sake of good works are grand. Are grand. I hope and pray that Titus has been good for you, that it has been encouraging to you as we've looked at what it looks like to have right pastors who teach right doctrine for right living. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you for your grace in our lives and thank you for this word for our souls. You lead us to obedience to this. May we look at our lives and discuss what this looks like for us as individuals and us as the church to be obedient to this. We pray these things in your name. Amen. At the end of our time together every week, we take communion here at Emmaus.
Um, we do this as the church. If you're someone who is a follower of Jesus, you've trusted in Jesus, then we invite you to take with us. And we do this to remember what Jesus has done, that he broke his body and he shed his blood for our forgiveness. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, we would invite you to come and take with us. We come and we tear the bread off and we dip it in the juice and we take it on our way back to our seats. And we just celebrate who Jesus is. And then we'll sing a song and you will be dismissed. If you're not a follower of Jesus, if you've never trusted in him, the invitation to you today is not to come take this juice and this wine. It will have no meaning for you. The invitation is for you to take Jesus. Would you trust in him today? Church, come and take. Thank you for listening to audio from Amaze KC, located in Kansas City. For more information about Amaze KC, please visit us online at www.amazekc.com.